This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. If you remember last week, we talked about Jesus showing up on the shore when Peter and a couple of disciples went out fishing. He uh, told the guys who were 100 yards away, he told the guys to cast the net on the other side, and uh, they did. There's this massive catch of fish, 153 fish, and John, of course, was the first one to recognize it was Christ. He was also the first one to believe when he saw the empty tomb, and he told Peter, not the rest of them, told Peter, it is the Lord. Peter got all excited. He was probably stripped down to his loincloth. Some scriptures say naked. He threw his cloak on and dived into the water to swim to Jesus because he was so full of excitement and exuberance, and I want to be where Christ is, and there's my Lord, and I don't care about the boat and the fish and all these other guys. I just want to get to Christ. And something happened during that 100-yard swim, because by the time he gets to Christ, his demeanor changes. We don't, we don't see Peter with the same enthusiasm when he's there with Christ as he had when he jumped into the water. Maybe he was awed by who it was. Maybe he was shocked. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know. First time he met Peter, first time he met Jesus when, um, when Jesus was using his boat and told him to cast the net on the right side, he, he fell down on his knees before Christ and said, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. And now we see him almost reserved, almost kind of not even hanging around Christ. There's no account that he walked up to Jesus or said anything or, hey, guys, it's really him and all the kind of stuff that you and I would expect if you've got a post-resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, the other boat pulls up and they're dragging their nets, but they didn't even drag the nets onto the shore. They're still halfway in the water and on the shore. They were shocked that the nets weren't breaking. The disciples then came to see Jesus, and what they noticed was a coal of fire, some fish. They noticed the bread that he had baked. They didn't say anything about Peter. Sure, he was there, but they didn't say anything about it. They didn't even talk about Christ being there. John throws in that kind of cryptic phrase that said, no one dared ask him, is it really you? Because they all kind of knew it was him, yet where was Peter? Jesus then says, hey, bring me one of the fish that you have. And Peter says, okay, and so Peter, who's not even, it appears, not even with Jesus and the rest of the crowd, he's over there where the boats are, where the fish are. Peter grabs the nets by himself. The other disciples didn't help him, drags these 153, three or four pound fish onto the shore. And it's almost like he separated himself from Jesus. It's almost like he, he didn't feel worthy to even be with Christ. And, and what we talked about last week is maybe what was going on in Peter's head during that 100-yard swim. He started out with such enthusiasm. It's the Lord into the water swimming. And on the way, he may be thinking, what am I going to say when I see him? 
And what's he going to think of me? I mean, is, is he going to chastise me? Is he going to, is he going to, why did you, why did you doubt? Why, why weren't you there with me? And, and you denied me and I looked at you and you went away and wept bitterly, but there was, there's, there's no, resolution of that relationship until this chapter. And of course, Paul says in Galatians that he, he met with Peter by himself. And I mean, well, what am I going to do? I mean, I don't even feel worthy to be with Christ. And, and maybe the bigger Christ got on the shore, the closer Peter got to him swimming, maybe the reality of his sin, the reality of his worthlessness, the reality of what he had done that Christ had already forgiven him for. What he had done became more than he could bear to the point that we don't see him with the same enthusiasm coming to Christ as we did jumping in the boat and heading to Christ. Verse number um, 11 of chapter 21. It says, Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land. Not the rest of the disciples, but Simon Peter, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. And Jesus said to them, to all of them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was risen from the dead. So the disciples are eating breakfast. Peter is probably back with the crowd, probably sitting, not bold like he always is. If everyone denies you, I'll never deny you. I will go to prison for you. I will lay down my life for you. Not that kind of Peter. But after they had eaten breakfast in verse 15, Jesus says to Simon Peter, which is kind of like the cryptic way the Holy Spirit lets us know. It's, he's kind of the spiritual and carnal guy, as I shared with you before. Uh, it's not 100% true in Scripture, but the overwhelming evidence is that every time Peter is doing something carnal, he's called by his pre-Christ changing his name name, which is Simon. When he's kind of vacillating, like, going to do right, going to do wrong, I'm, I don't really know which way to go, and I'm really struggling with these things, he's referred to by the Holy Spirit as Simon Peter. And whenever he's just really on fire for the Lord, doing the things a Christian's supposed to do, he's referred to by his new name, which is Peter. Notice what it says in verse 15. Jesus said to Simon Peter, but it refers to him as the carnal Simon. Simon, son of Jonah. Verse 16, Simon, son of Jonah. Verse 17, Simon, son of Jonah. And so let me, uh, the question he asked here, of course, to Simon is the same question he asked each one of us especially when we're vacillating between a new life in Christ, the commitment that comes with that new life in Christ, the, the, the yielding of ourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the, the giving up of the things that seem important to us, but in the great scheme of things aren't, that uh, he asks us the very same question, which is, do you love me? Do you love me? Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Steve McCraney, son of Bo. Do you love me? Do you love me? All this began pretty much. Uh, Peter's greatest downfall and his, his greatest boast came at the Last Supper. Um, we find the account of that in Luke 22. So if you'll turn to that, I want to give you just a really quick overview of this. Luke 22. There's some powerful verses that are here. 
We'll just, I'll just start reading in verse number 1, Luke 22. It says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. Because, again, Luke is writing to Gentiles who wouldn't really understand what these words mean. And the chief priest and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he, Jesus, sent Peter and John saying, Go prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. They said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, just that, you know, 2114 Elm Street. And he wasn't that way at all. There's a miracle in this. He says, behold, when you have entered a city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, which men did not do back then. Following him into, follow, follow him into the house, which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he sat down with the 12 apostles with him, and he said to them with fervent desire, most important thing in his life right now. I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this, divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes, it has been determined, this is God's sovereignty here, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they, the disciples, begin to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. I want you to think about what that questioning was probably like. It could have been all like this, very humble. And there are, there is an account in scripture where this was part of their questioning. Uh, is it me? I mean, it must be me because my heart is despicably wicked. And I know I, I, I could do something like this. And God, I, I don't want to think that I could go that far. But, but God, is it me? Because of all the disciples here, they seem so much more godly than I am. It has to be me. Or it probably went like this. I know it's not me. It's got to be him. If it's not him, it's you. I mean, it's got to be somebody in this room. So if the Lord said somebody was going to betray him, I mean, we're sitting at the, the logistics of the Lord's Supper. We have Jesus here. We have John at his right hand, who later lays his head on his breast and, and asks him, who is it? We have Judas was given the second highest place of honor at this right next to Jesus because Jesus told John and he reached over and gave him the, um, the uh, bread with the bitter herbs. Do you remember? So probably the discussion was more like, well, it's not me. Well, is it you, Peter? No, no, it's not me. It's not me. It's not 
John, it's probably, probably Thomas. Thomas can't make up his mind anyway. And because we find out that the very next verse, it says that there was also a discussion among them as that, as to which, which of them will be considered the greatest. Well, the greatest person is the one that would never, never, ever, um, say that about Jesus or betray Jesus. And, and I'm only greater because I didn't do it and I would never do it. And you obviously are less. Because you probably would. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For he who is greater, for, for who is greater? He who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. But, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, just as, and sit on the, on the thrones, on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, that's a, that's an amazing promise. Just to, that I have a kingdom that was given to me, and I am going to give a kingdom to you. And the kingdom I'm going to give to you gives you the right to sit at my table on my kingdom, and I'm actually giving you thrones that you can sit judging the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. But the very next phrase, Jesus said, is directed towards Simon. Not Simon Peter, but Simon the carnal Simon, and he uses his name twice. And look what he says here in verse 31. And the Lord said to Simon, Simon, exclamation point, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. Wow, so, uh, Lord, that's... That's incredible. I mean, um, I'm frightened that Satan has asked permission, obviously from you or, or from your father, to sift me as wheat, to see what I'm made of, to, to throw me in, in like a, a winnowing house and, and throw it up in the air and see how much of the chaff is left in me and, and see if there's anything worthy at all. But you, Lord, have prayed for me. Now, Jesus, of course, prays for all of us, but, but you, Lord, have prayed for me. And I wonder if Peter would have asked Jesus, um, what have you prayed? Or, or can I offer a prayer request to you if it would have been the same thing that Jesus actually prayed for? If I was Peter, I'd have said, Lord, would you, um, would you just bless me? And would you, would you, I don't know, just expand my ministry? Would you let me be proof faithful to you? Would you, these trials and tribulations and fears and, you know, all this kind of stuff going on, would you, would you take that all away? And, and, and God, if Satan has asked to sift me like wheat, how about you say no? How about you say it? I'd rather, you know, I'd really rather not be sifted by wheat or tried by fire. But that's not what Jesus said. He says, but I prayed for you. Now, what is that prayer? That your faith should not fail. Well, my faith can only fail if my faith is under attack. 
So what, what happens, Lord? My faith should, what happens if I do fail? What, what, what's going to happen here? And when you have returned to me, which means Jesus knew there was a defection that was going to take place. When you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. When you have suffered your deepest, darkest night of the soul, when you have looked at your life and what you thought you were worth and found yourself empty and wanting, when you made bold affirmations that, that all these other people will do these things, but I will not, when all that takes place and you find yourself the grandest of hypocrites and failures, and you run from me like these guys were running from their commitment to Christ now, Jesus didn't tell them to go fishing. He actually gave them other instructions. And when... When all that happens and you're afraid to even look me in the eye, when you have returned to me, when you have been restored, strengthen your brethren who may be going through the very same thing you are. You know, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of the truth that God never wastes an experience in our life. Never. Good or bad. You know, a young couple goes out and decides to, you know, get married. And then the both are Christians and are faithful in church. And then the husband does something horrific, like has an affair and has another baby out of wedlock. And he and his wife get divorced and there's hurt and there's hard feelings and there's all that kind of stuff. And how can God ever use somebody like that? I mean, his life is pretty much over because of what he's done. But God never wastes an experience, good or bad. Because God could take that very same man who gave in to the sin I'm struggling with or you're struggling with and say, you don't understand. Here's the consequences of going the way I did. But God has restored me and given me strength and telling his own personal testimony can encourage his brethren. True? Doesn't mean that we honor those people who have really sinful lives. But people who have committed sins even commit sins now, when you turn them over to the Lord, God restores them and uses those sins as just an experience which we can share the love of Christ even more, especially if we're able to forgive ourselves. If we can't forgive ourselves, then we don't want to share it. We want to sit in the very back of the church. No offense to you guys sitting in the back of the church. We don't want to meet anybody. We just kind of want to just go through our motions and be done with it. But I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren, Peter. But Lord, but he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. And when he said to them, when I sent you out without money bag, knapsack and sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. Then he said to him, but now he who has money bag, let him take it. And likewise, knapsack. And he who has a sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he quotes from Isaiah 53. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the thing concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, either it is enough or that's enough. And life goes on. The story continues in John 13. We're not going to turn to it tonight. But, but Peter jumped up and said, 
I will do this. I will follow you. And, and in John 13, of course, he says, I'll follow you even to death. And Jesus says, you'll deny me. And, and then because of where I'm going, you can't go. And then John 14 continues where he starts talking to them about the Holy Spirit coming and and then he's preparing a place in heaven that they, he can receive them unto himself. Incredible words. But Jesus did not pray that Peter's trial would be taken away. Do you realize everything you're going through right now, you're going through because of the sovereign will of God, that he is allowing you to do that? I mean, if you're struggling, Jeannie Wynn is struggling with cancer. Do you think, by the way, that God could heal her of her cancer in a moment? Has she asked? Is she continually asking? Is Tom asking? Are we asking? We're asking and we're believing and we're trusting, but we always throw the caveat in there. It's not my will, what your will is. In the flesh, I can't see any good that comes out of Jeannie Wynn suffering like she is in cancer. I can't. With cancer, I can't. But I'm not God. And it's like, God, here's my desire, here's my wish, here's my prayer for Jeannie, or for you, or for me, or my own family, my own life. But God, you will either heal her or you won't. You'll either change my situation or you won't. You'll either restore the relationship or you won't. And I'm cool with it either way. If I say, not my will, but your will be done. I, um, Peter says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be sifted by wheat. And Jesus says, yeah, you are. Can you change that for me? Oh, absolutely. I could just think the thought and Satan would be just bound and thrown away, but I'm not. Because there's a bigger picture here that after you suffer, after you fail, after you finally forgive yourself, then you're going to have greater credibility to strengthen your brothers who are going to suffer through the same thing you're suffering through right now. Jesus didn't promise to remove the trials, but left him as an encouragement to others. And that's not what Peter was doing right now. Peter was actually discouraging them by encouraging them to go back to their old way of life. You know, this thing with the hired holy man, it's not really working. We expected Jesus to come as a temporal king, and he's not. And he's getting ready to go and leave us here to fend for ourselves So why why don't we do that? Why don't we go back and and do the things that men do? Let's go back to work. Let's go back and make some money because I lost a lot of money. My business these last three and a half years has has really suffered since I followed Christ. But since it didn't turn out the way I thought it should turn out or the way I envisioned it turning out, I'm going to go back to my old life. That's the last thing Jesus wanted Peter to do. Watch how he sets this up. First, Jesus wants to bring Peter back to the point of brokenness to his greatest, I love this, to his greatest defeat and tragedy and failure, but he does it without even saying a word. Peter comes up and he sees Jesus. The disciples come up and he sees Jesus and notice what the Holy Spirit wanted us to know. He says, then as soon as they had come to land, they saw fires of coal there. That's the first thing they mentioned. Fires of coal. You saw Christ, didn't you? But they saw fires of coal. And where did he get the fish? And did he miraculously, did he bake bread? Or did he just create bread like he did, you know, he multiplied the loaves and fishes? I mean, I mean, that's, I'm the, what, what, there's a whole lot of stuff to look at here. But the Holy Spirit wanted us to know when they came up, what they noticed was fires of coal. 
Jesus comes up and he see, or Peter comes up and he sees Jesus and a fire of coals there, which are reminiscent of just a couple chapters earlier when this great failure took place. Now the servants and officers had made a fire of coals and stood there. For it was cold and they warned themselves and Peter stood with them and warned himself. And when he did, it was almost like this remembrance clicked in his head, clicked in his brain. And oh, I, I, I see what's, I got it. I remember, I remember there's a, there's a connection here. And maybe it was that that made Peter kind of drift off to the side while the other disciples showed up. But Jesus brought him back to the point of failure in order to set up his, rest, his restoration without ever uttering a word. And then, of course, begins in verse 15, which is some of the most amazing passages in this book of John. We have a question and an answer and a command. That's what Jesus asks a question, gets an answer, and then gives a command. It's really simple. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Doesn't say that the other two times, he just says it here. Peter says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. You know, we can kind of read through this, but there's a number of key words in here that we need to kind of focus on. One of the facts is he says, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know. Which, which no is this? Is this gnosko? Is that Edo? I mean, I mean, which no is this? Did you love me? Love is mentioned twice. And then he says, if you do love me, I want you to feed my lambs. And so I need to know what the love means. I need to know what this no means. And it would be really good for me to know what feed is. Because the next time he doesn't use the word feed anymore, he uses the word tend. And we're not dealing with lambs anymore. We're dealing with sheep. I mean, what's the Lord trying to show us here? Second verse. And again, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Well, now we've got the love here again, and we actually have the word know again. Is this gnosko or is this edo? Is this one of the other Greek words? And what does it mean when he says, you know that I love you? And then he said to him, now tend, not just feed. This is a more inclusive word, tend my sheep. Lambs are one thing, now we're dealing with sheep. Third time, John 21, verse 17. Said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. Same sentence, two words for no here. Jesus then said to him, feed my sheep. We got feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and now feed my sheep. And it's all a question and an answer and a command. I want to show you this. This is other than just being kind of cool with the Greek words, and I've kind of shared with you this before, and I even had a chapter about this in the, the Leaving Laodicea book. There's more to it here, especially when you look at the word no to figure out exactly what, uh, what Jesus is asking Peter. There's Peter. There's the fish. There's the old life. You know, I've, I've fixed breakfast for you guys. I've gone over. There's 153 fish that are here. It's a pretty good haul. The nets weren't even broken. And 
Peter had gone back to fishing, the old life, something he felt comfortable with. There's, there's no, been no real communication the scripture talks about between Peter and Jesus may have happened, but we don't have it recorded in the scripture. Jesus even commissioned one of the angels to say, tell my disciples and Peter. Do you remember that? That I go before you into Galilee. There's a, a point here where Jesus wants to restore Peter not kicking to the curb like Peter probably thought, but to say, even in the depth of the sin that you committed and the wrong answers that you're giving me right now, that's a value judgment on my part, um, I still have a plan for you. I still love you. I I still want to use you, even in your failure and your frailty. But he says, your question, first one. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, do you love me more than these? Jesus, of course, is talking about agapeo. He's talking about agape love. He's talking about a one-sided love, a love that, that gives and gives and gives and expects nothing in return. A love that can, isn't based on a contract. It's not based on a condition. It's not based on the fact that I will love you if you do this and you'll love me back. And as long as I'm loving you and putting 50% into this marriage, if you put 50%, then we got a deal. But if it becomes 90-10, I'm not really interested in that anymore. It's an altruistic, powerful, unselfish love. Peter, do you love me like I love you more than these fish, more than the boats, more than the nets, more than the guys that are out here that were part of the family business anyway, more than what this life has to offer. I've already told you that I'm going to make you a fisher of men, but you've gone back to be a fisher of fish, which is for you. It's not for them. It's for you. It's not even serving me anymore. You're still serving you. Well, I got to, Lord, because, you know, I got a family to feed. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 6, where I told you that if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and not your own selfish whims, that I will take care of all your needs, all your needs, as a good master does to a slave or a father to his child. Simon Peter, Simon, the carnal name, son of Jonah, talking to you, do you agape me more than these? Peter's answer. Yes, Lord, you know, you know, Edo, you know, 1492, you know, in your head, you know, cognitively, you know, everybody knows, you can just look at me and tell that I filio you. I don't love you like you love me. I love you like a brother. I love you like a friend. I love you like an acquaintance. I love you like I do these other guys out there. I mean, this is how I love you. I'm, part of me is like, Peter, what are you doing? I mean, what are you doing? The Lord is asking you if you, if you love him like he loves you and your response is, I love you like a buddy. I mean, the Greek word is a little more intense than that, but I, I love you like a brother, like a, like a friend. And you should have said, I love you like Christ loves me. Yeah. But that's not how I feel. That's not within my heart. That's not what I'm capable of doing. That would be a lie. Lord, I, you know, Lord, you know in your head, you know by my, my actions, you know what I've done. You know there's, there's really no way that I could ever love you more than just a friend and do the things 
that I did against you. Here's Jesus' command. He didn't say, well, you need to love me more. You need to get on your knees. You need to repent of your sins. You need to kiss my feet. You need to do, you need to do penance. You need to get your life in order. I mean, come on. This is enough of this stuff. I got plans for you. He didn't do that at all. He didn't chastise him. He didn't, he didn't beat him up for his failures. He simply gave him the same command he gave him from the beginning. He said to him, even though you say that you only love me this much, I love you with everything that's in me. I need you to feed my lambs. Feed is, what is boskeo? And it pretty much means just that, to feed, to take care of little sheep, little lambs. These are not grown sheep. Take care of, the imagery here, of course, is take care of young Christians and young believers who are going to look to you for leadership. They're going to look to you on how it's supposed to be and how you're supposed to act and, and what happens when you, when you have the highs with Christ, like when you're on a mountain of transfiguration with me. But how do you survive the lows like you're going through right now? Feed my lambs. Followed it right up with the second question. He said to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agapeo me? I can't imagine what Peter must have been feeling. It's almost like when somebody asks you a question that you really wish they didn't because it brought back, it brought out of you the worst emotions, the worst feelings. I don't want to go there. I don't remember that anymore. And Hey, did you really do this? (sighs) Yeah, I did. But uh, can, can we, can we just not talk about that anymore? And the very next thing he's asking the same question. Hey, did you do this? You're like pouring salt on the wound here. Second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Do you agape o me? Answer, same answer. Said him, yes, Lord, you know, you know, you know in your head that I filio you. It's all I'm capable of doing. I mean, to love you like you love me, I would have never done the things that I feel maybe so guilty about. Command, I need you to tend. This is a totally different word. I want you to tend to my sheep. This isn't just feeding. I'm going to talk about what these words mean in just a second. But this isn't just feeding. This is shepherding. This is, this is leading, guiding, protecting, ruling, guarding. Feed my sheep. Third time, question. Simon, son of Jonah, do you filio me? I know you don't love me like I would hope you would and like I love you, but do you filio me? Do you, you love me as a friend? Next passage says that Peter was grieved that Jesus asked him a third time. And I think the reason why he was grieved because Jesus used the word filio back with Peter. Do you really just love me like a buddy? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you filio me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You, you know, you know the end from the beginning. You know how the creation took place. You know what's going to happen at the end. You know everything. Edo. And you also know Gnosko, 109.7. You know by experience that I filio you. God, you, you, you know, you're, you're sovereign. So you eat everything, but you also 
have experienced just my filial love for you. You know my failures. You know how I denied you. You know how I, I ran. You know how I boasted and shut my mouth off and thought I was better than all the other people that are there. And I even said that if all the others deny you, I never will. You know by experience, inwardly, by your passion, you know what I did. You know, Lord, that I filio you. And then Jesus gives the command. I want you to feed, back to Boskeo, my sheep. It's almost like, it's almost like um, as you're caught in the worst of sins, doing something the Lord told you not to do, and he comes to you and says, do you love me? Well, obviously, not as much as I claim not as much as I told you I did, because if I truly loved you, I wouldn't be doing the things I was doing. If I truly loved you, I'd be devoted to you more. If I truly loved you, you'd be the passion of my life rather than you know business or my family or politics or whatever. So obviously, I can't. I, mean, I must not. And you need to find somebody else, Lord. If you want somebody else to, to minister for you, to sacrifice for you, you need to find somebody else who loves you like you love them. And the glorious thing is the Lord says to Peter, no, I've chosen you, chosen you. Even with your failures failures and your frailty, and even with the fact that you feel so bad about yourself because of what you didn't do, the reality is that um, I need you to tend my sheep. I need you to feed my lambs. I need you to feed my sheep. I'm entrusting to you the people that I died for, the people that meant the most for me, the, the people who are lost without a shepherd. We have feed my lambs, we have tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. And here's, here's what the words really mean. It says feed, this word means to pasture or to attend while grazing. In other words, I'm going out there as a shepherd and I'm just watching them as they're feeding. I'm just, that's all that's involved in this. I'm just making sure they're okay. Feed my, and he uses this every time, which denotes ownership. These aren't yours. I'm leaving, and I'm trusting you, Peter, with all your sin and all your frailties. I'm trusting you to feed my lambs, my little ones. It's the same word that the Scripture uses for the little lambs that are sacrificed on the altar. Feed my lambs. Feed my young believers. Feed my children. Feed those that belong to me. Give of yourself. Give them what I've given you, what the Holy Spirit gives you. Feed them. That's your job, Peter. Second time, he says, I want you to tend. And this is different now. This means to care for, provide, to rule over, to lead them. In other words, this is what a shepherd does. Now, now I'm not just feeding them here in this pasture. Now I'm moving them. They're following me. I'm taking care of them. I'm protecting them. I'm guarding them. I'm, I'm ruling over them. I need you to tend to my sheep. The word sheep here in the Greek means exactly what it says. It's a four-footed animal, which is a grown sheep. So we're gone from lambs now to more mature believers. A mature believer comes, they need you to feed the young believers to make them into strong believers. And once they become from a lamb to a sheep, you, you need to, you need to, to work with them and, and lead them and show them the right way. Your job is not over. And then not only do you to rule and govern over them and provide for them, but you're also to feed them also. Because the third time he says, I need you to feed my sheep. That's your job, Peter. That's, that's what I've called you to do. I'm studying this. 
I mean, I really struggle with a lot of self-guilt um, in my life. A lot of, um, um, before I got saved, um, I did some absolutely horrific things that are all covered under the blood of Christ. But um, um, I still, sometimes I just, I can't, I, I can't let go of them. You know what I'm talking about? I just, I can't let them go. I remember um, when I was uh, younger, my, uh, um, I had a rather significant drug problem and I would do a lot of stealing from department stores and breaking in homes and all that kind of stuff. Not, not a whole lot different than Steph and I just was more educated than he was. And I found out the easiest place to steal from was nursing homes. Because I could go into a nursing home and steal an old lady's television and sell it and nobody would, nobody would matter. And I, uh, I would go Sunday about 12.15, a little before that, and I'd be dressed up in a suit, and I would be the guy from the First Baptist Church who was going down because we were going to do a big singing for the people at the nursing home. And I would go into a nursing home, and I would walk up and down the halls. Nobody would ever say anything to me because I looked the part. And, and I would look in everybody's room, and what I was looking for this particular time was a, uh, a television with a remote control. I'm just kind of a big thing back then. And I'd see a lady in there, and she'd be watching the television, the remote control, and I would walk in. i said, say, ma'am, how are you doing? She's fine, fine. This, this lady in a nursing home that was totally defenseless, that had, had nothing, nothing. And uh, what are you here for, young man? Oh, listen, we're all coming down to sing for you. You all like a singing? Oh, I love a singing. That'd be great. Well, I'm just trying to go down and kind of usher everybody down to the to the lunchroom down there. And if you're going to just kind of wheel yourself on down there, we're going to, church is going to be coming in just a little while. And it's going to be a really great time. And well, that's God bless you. Thank you very much. And she'd get in her wheelchair. And she'd wheel out. As soon as she turned the corner, I'd grab her TV and head out the back door. And I, yeah, I never thought about it until I got saved. And then I'm sitting here thinking, what, this poor lady. I mean, she's sitting in her wheelchair by herself in a lunchroom or whatever the room was, waiting on a church that wasn't coming. And then when she went back to her, back to her room, her television set was gone. Now, you may not think that's a horrific thing, but it is. It is. And although Christ has forgiven me of that, sometimes Satan throws those things back up in my head and... and I'm sharing with you kind of like a C-level sin. Some of the other stuff that I've done that are terrible. Even some of the stuff that I've done since I've been saved because it was all about me and not about them and people that have been hurt and choices that I've made. The same choices you've made in your Christian life because none of us is without sin. We've all made mistakes. And, and, I, and sometimes I feel like as soon as that happens, I mean, God, you can't use me. I would never choose me. I would never mow I would choose you in a heartbeat. And Mo would say, I tell Karen this all the time. I said, you know, I'm so shocked that God even chose me. I said, I would choose you. And she goes, no, you wouldn't because you don't know how wicked my heart is. I've lived with you for 38 years. Ain't nothing wicked in you. Well, no, there isn't. Okay. And we always think somebody else is better than us. Have you noticed? And when I, when I pointed to Mo and says, I would choose you, Mo probably thought, not me. Uh-uh. Not me. I mean, we're all that way. But if we let... If we let our feelings about ourselves and impose upon God this draconian kind of attitude where he's going to harbor, drud- uh, harbor grudges against us and kind of, kind of like Santa Claus, you know, he's, he's got a list and he's checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty and nice. And if you're nice, you get a gift. If you're naughty, you get a bag of coal, you know, and, and we think that God is somehow like that. 
it robs us of all ministry. But God uses us in spite of our sin. We confess it, he forgives it, and then he cleanses us from all unrighteousness and then uses that cleansing and that confessing and that sin as a platform to to reach others who are struggling with the same stuff we're struggling with. It's only when we get overwhelmed by what we've done. And there are consequences to pay for sins. But those consequences are not God saying, I'll never use you again. Now, there are consequences. You know, if I had an affair and divorced my wife, I can no longer be a pastor of a church. But that doesn't mean he can't ever use me again. You understand what I'm saying? So the question that I always ask myself, I know the answer, but sometimes I need to be reminded of it. The same question I'm asking you, does God love you? I mean, how would you have responded to Peter after learning he only loved you like a brother? Would you not be ticked? Like with your own kids. Um, Hey, son, um, I love you. I love you too, Dad. Do do you love me this much like I love you? No, I kind of love you like I do Tommy down the road. Really? Yeah. Maybe you didn't understand my question. Um, I'll use justice. This is my son. Justice, do you? Love me like I love you. No, I kind of love you like I love Scott. <laughs> like a brother, like a friend. Uh, uh, Justice, do you, are you really telling me that you only love me as much as you love Scott? Look, Dad, you know all things, and you can tell by my actions and know experientially that I really just love you like I love Scott. Would that hurt? I mean, would you not be crushed? I mean, I, I would almost... I would I get angry. Yeah, well, you know what? You ain't living here no more. Go live with Scott. You know, or are, are not going to choose you. And I mean, we, we'd be hurt. We'd be angry. And we'd almost think that's how Christ wants to respond. But, but he didn't. He didn't. It didn't even phase him. Do you, uh, do you love me? I love you like I love Scott. Well, great, because here's my job for you to do. I need you to go take care of my most precious possession that I have are the children I died for. I need you to feed them and love them and encourage them and take care of them. Okay. Second time, I need you to do this. Third time, I need you to do this. Well, if Jesus responded to Peter that way, do you think he'd respond to you the same way? If you came to him with confession? God, I have messed up and I have, I've gone my own way and I've, I've kind of I've kind of gone off the rails here, and, and my life is uh, just really, really in the pits right now. And, and I know that you're not gracious, and you're not loving, and you're not going to treat me like you did Peter. You're going to treat me like you did Judas. None of that is true. That's a fabrication in our own mind. That God is no respecter of persons, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if we think that, well, that's just what he did for Peter. It's almost as if we believe that somehow he loved Peter more than he loves us. But did he die for Peter? And did he die for you? He loves us the same. And so what he tells Peter is that you need to stop wallowing in your self-pity, self-flagellation. And you need to get back to the priority of your first love. And he says this twice in the next couple of verses. Let me just read this and then we'll close. Verse 17. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. 
And Jesus said to him, third time, feed my sheep. And then he says this about Peter. Not done with you, Peter. Your life's not over, Peter. I'm going to give you a glimpse of what your future's like. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked to where you wish. You were your own man. You called your own shot. You were the entrepreneur. You were the, the guy, the independent contractor. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And just so that we'll understand what Jesus is saying, the Holy Spirit through the pen of John interprets this for us. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, now now that you know how it's going to turn out, follow me. Follow me. Peter, of course, probably can't imagine that's happening. God, you're that gracious to me. I I don't understand it. I mean, I'm going to die this way, and you've already told me that's going to happen. You want me to follow you, and I'm in a crisis of of crisis of belief here. And then there's the disciple that you love, the one that seems like only good things happen to. And so Peter then turns around, saw the disciple, verse 20, whom Jesus left following, who had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? And Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? You told me what's going to happen to me, but what about him? And I love the fact that uh, Jesus didn't say, oh, yeah, well, here's what's going to happen to him. He's going to live to about 100. He's going to uh, die um, after he's exiled on Patmos. He's actually going to be boiled in oil and survive, but he's going to live a long life, write a lot of um, letters in the New Testament. You're going to write a couple too, but the, but the fact is that that's what's going to happen to him. So now there's no need for faith anymore because I've already told you. He didn't say that at all. It's almost sarcastically. He says, if I will that he remains till I come, what is that to you? Second time, you. First time it's follow me, now it's personal. You follow me. And just so that we'll understand that what the Lord was saying here wasn't that John would never die, the Holy Spirit gives us, tells us the rest of the story in verse 23. It says, Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remains till I come, what is that to you? What is that to you? Last thought, and this is what we're going to talk about next week when we finish up the book of John. And it's what does it mean to you to follow Jesus? What does that mean? I know what the church says means to be a Christian. And it means that you help to support the entity, 5013C, the, the visible church right now, that when you come to Christ, what it means is that your, your behavior should change along with your sanctification, that you're expected to come and be, get involved and pay your tithes and, and kind of keep the thing going like, like, a, like a, you know, a guy on a treadmill, just constantly grinding it out. That's, that's kind of what it means. But Jesus never said, you know, become a good church member or any of the kind of stuff. He simply said several times in Scripture, follow me, act like me. Live like me, think like me, do what I do, follow me. And then he got personal in his last time with Peter in verse 22. He says, no, 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 you, you, not them, not him, not the rest of them, you follow me. Same thing he said to my life and same things he said to your life. And what does that mean? What does it mean to follow Christ? Again, we're going to be, that's all we're going to look at next, uh, next Tuesday evening. 
But I want to close by just encouraging you this way. Whatever sin or failure or opportunity that you think has disqualified you from bearing God's fruit, none of that is true. None of that is true. That's, that's a fabrication in your own head. I can't tell you the number of men that I've met, um, mostly when I was in my 50s, because that's when the midlife crisis hits. And I, I can't, there must have been literally 60 or 70 guys I've talked to that have said this. Yeah, when I was young, I felt God was calling me to preach, but I decided to go out and make money instead, and now it's too late. No, it's not. That's in your head. It's just, no, it's not. That's an excuse. You, you messed up back then. Maybe you've wasted 20 or 30 years that you could have used doing something with eternal consequences. You only did something that had temporal consequences. But then what God doesn't, God doesn't still have a call in your life. God's calling is irrevocable. It doesn't mean that you have to quit your job and go to seminary at 58 years old and pastor a church for eight or 10 years. We're not talking about that. But he's talking about sharing Christ and being a proclaimer of who he is. What does it mean to follow Christ? So whatever failures, whatever mistakes, whatever trials you're going through right now, if you will simply lay those at the Lord's feet, Repent of those. Forgive yourself for those, because Christ already has. And if Christ has forgiven me of a sin, and I refuse to forgive myself of a sin, it's the height of arrogance in my life. Because what it's saying is, my standard of righteousness is higher than his. You're weak, Christ. I mean, I would have never forgiven me, and you did forgive me, but I'm not accepting that forgiveness because you're weak. You should have been like me. You should have made me suffer and pay and... I mean, that's just crazy, isn't it? And I find myself falling back into that quite often. And it's like you get victory over it and then it feels good in the flesh again. But the reality is that, and all God wants to do is let us bear his fruit if we rest and trust and abide in him. Amen? Let me pray.